Hello, I am Jeremy Kingsbury. This is Way Too Twog's Bagpipe and History Podcast, the show where you come along with me as I explore the likely repertoire of 18th and early 19th century bagpipers. Let's listen to some tunes. Well, I know I said there wasn't going to be an episode this week, um, but I'm prone to lie about when there is or is not going to be episodes. Um, so yeah, we've got an episode this week. I wound up having a kind of really pleasant sit-down, uh, well, Zoom conversation with Joy Abarda, uh, and kind of mostly the the whole thread was largely centering around the history of Illin piping and Illin pipers in America, and that seemed like a thing to release shortly before the Fourth of July. Um, so yeah, so that's what we're gonna do. Um, mostly just gonna you know, play, play the interview. The reason Joy and I started talking was, you know, shortly after Pat Skye's passing, I was asking if he had gotten a chance to talk with Pat or not. So that's basically what we're going to talk about. Uh, that's sort of where the conversation begins. Uh, I just got to say, you know, I, I think a lot, I mentioned this on the podcast, I think how a lot of us are that knew of Patrick Sky from those Illin Pipe albums or his Illin Piping, or kind of keep on having these, like, oh, no kidding, uh, things as, you know, he gets another interesting obituary than the New York Times or Rolling Stones or whatever. So, um, but yeah, I was on a road trip and kind of wanted some new tunes and listened to the entirety of his debut album from 1965, just called Patrick Sky, and it's so good. Uh, so I'm going to just kind of take the risk here and play the first track off of that album. I really highly recommend checking it out if you can, if you're into folk music. Uh, yeah, it's good stuff. So anyway, here is Pat Sky singing Many a Mile, and then we'll cut in to Joy and I having a chat, and we'll kind of finish off with, hopefully, uh, we'll finish off with Joy playing a tune uh, from his, I think, most recent album, Copley Street. We talk a little bit about kind of a forthcoming uh, second Copley album. So seems fitting to play a tune off Copley Street. So anyway, here is Pat Sky singing Many a Mile from 1965. I've damn near walked this world around Another city, another town Another friend to say goodbye Another girl to sit and cry And it's many a mile I've spent on this road It's many a mile I have gone Well there was one who knew me best You know she gave my poor heart rest She was my world my heart my dear Now she's gone to God knows where And it's many a mile I've spent on this 
this road It's many a mile I have I've seen your towns, they're all the same The only difference is in a name The only home I ever knowed Was a suitcase and the open road And it's many a mile I've spent on this road It's many a mile I have gone So I'll fill my glasses up to the brim And through my glass my world looks dim But I know outside there's light somewhere Maybe my rambling will get me It's many mile I've spent on this road It's many mile I've gone It's many mile I've spent on this road And it's many mile I will go Yeah, so Joey, thanks for thanks for coming on. I we were talking a little bit about Pat Sky, and the first I heard about this project you were working on, uh, like if it's a project about the kind of history of inland piping in America, was during your uh, Piper Sunday session, where it seemed like you were setting up an appointment to meet with Pat Sky and talk with him about that. So I'm just curious, kind of what's your project, how it's coming along, if you had a chance to talk to Pat, um, that sort of thing. Um. Well, the original idea was there hasn't been, like, all, like, history of illin piping in America. There hasn't been really anything, like, published except articles in the Pibri of people. And then the uh, national magazine um, that the Seattle Pipers Club put out, which is a Pipers Review, which went on for many years. And I think a lot of that's online. There's, there's, there's people did stuff on O'Farrell, all the stuff. Oh, really? But but they're printed, right? And then that's that's it. It's very fleeting. Um, and if you wanted to get somebody's email or something to try to access any of those, we'll talk at the end, and I'll give you this. Okay. Um. So, my whole deal, whole idea was, and I talked to people about it. Like, has anyone done like an oral history? So for me, it's not, it, it wouldn't be like a PhD of the entire history of inland piping in America. I've done a couple of PowerPoints for piping festivals on the history of villain pipes in America. And like the first f- like physical proof is ads of uh, performers um, from then till now you know what I mean yeah um, but what what 
the whole project I was talking to Pat about on the Piper Sunday thing that the Southern California uh, Pipers Club put on for me is that I wanted to do an oral history about what piping was like when he started. Okay. Who were the people that played? We could get like maybe one or two generations back if we got the people that were older now. Yeah. And the reason why I asked Pat is that he did so much frail and piping in America. There's a lot of people um, that wouldn't be playing or doing stuff that wasn't for him. You know, like, and uh, when he came on to the, to the, I've never met him. We never had the chance. He lived in Rhode Island. And um, we never had the chance to meet because he moved away before I even moved to the East Coast. Mm-hmm. He moved to um, the country in um, South Carolina. Yeah, North Carolina there. North Carolina, sorry. Yeah. And um, yeah, we talked on the phone once after that to plan the next meeting. And unfortunately that didn't happen because he passed away, God rest his soul. But um, he, there was an urgency in his voice when I was speaking to him and he said that he wanted to get a lot of stuff wrapped up and he'd love for me to come down. Yeah. I was telling him at the time, I was working for the post office at the time and I could not get away. I literally could not take time off. And besides that, I had a, you know, three week old little baby. Oh, on cue right there. Right now? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I mean, the only reason I know that he um, lived in North Carolina or then South Carolina is I'm sort of in that same boat of feeling foolish for not taking advantage because like my wife lives my wife grew up maybe an hour from where he lives so every time we go back to see in-laws we're like right there and just never never made the trip yeah so i spoke to a lot of people um to get interviewed that i know have been in the scene for a really long time i talked to bennett kohler um karen o'hare um Tim Britton. Uh, I don't know if you ever heard of Tom Standevin. Oh, that name sounds familiar, but I don't think so. Tom was a piper in Philadelphia um, who spoke. He was a he was an Irish speaker as well as, as he played the pipes. Is that Tim's teacher? Tim Britton's Tim, teacher? No, Tim Britton? Yeah. Um, They had interactions. Okay. Yeah, they had interactions together. Um, that might have been why I heard about him. But. Oh, well, he would have... Yeah, of course. Well, Tim would have known him, definitely. I don't think they were ever um, a formal pair in terms of teacher-student. But his he probably learned a lot from Tom because he, he was that type of guy. And Tom has a lot of students that are still alive. But you wouldn't necessarily hear of them. None of them are going off and you know, recording records or going on tour and they're just like regular people. And um, Tom and I have a connection because um, he was the first American to win the Oireachtas uh, for Island Piping um, in, I want to say, the 70s. 
but I don't have the I don't have the exact date. I had, I'd have to look it up. And um, I was unaware of this because I thought he was Irish mm. from Ireland. But um, but when I won it in uh, two thousand and fifteen, maybe uh, or something like that. Um, I can't remember. But when I won it, I was. They said that I was the first American to win it. And uh, then I got a letter from one of his students saying that how dare you kind of take his his um, his mojo away. You know, they're very protective, which they should be. You know, I would be uh, for my teacher, too. I said, I'm so sorry. It is an error. It is an error that they're saying that. And I'll try to correct it to the best of my ability. Um, but that's how I kind of started down this path of looking for Tom, like Tom students and all this stuff. And, um, but so he and Pat, sorry, I said he and Pat had a connection. No, okay. but Tom is one of those, is one of the people that was like a part, an integral part to the history of what piping in America is today. Like I had this long list of these people that I've heard of, interacted with, or know somebody that knew them. And what I wanted to do for the project was to basically do interviews, um, record it all, and then have a place where you can go and listen to the interviews for free, basically. Um, you know. I don't work for university. I don't have any funding. I don't have any grants funding. I don't have a degree in anything. So I, um, you know, would have to spend my own time to do it. And uh, it's, it's, it's a good deal of work. I have a friend who's an ethnomusicologist who works at Harvard. Um, she's actually one of my wife's really good friends. She, she's a dancer as well. And um, she said that she would help me out. So she's 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 into it so she can make it all like legal eagle i guess in terms <laughs> of like that you know so it's not just like chopped up crud so um yeah so he was on my list and i've been moving ahead with the interviews but at the moment just because my family situation and everything and my workload at work was so high for the past three months that I just couldn't do anything. I, I wasn't playing any music at all or teaching or anything. Brutal. Um, yeah, it was pretty brutal. So um, that also went on the back burner, um, unfortunately. But the idea is still there, and I'm I'm going to get it going. I'm I'm trying to start a nonprofit actually with a couple other like-minded individuals to. Um, get funding for stuff like this, stuff that we want to do that we like um, doing that is important to us or we think is important. But the more you, the more you drag your feet, you know, like I got to meet Kevin Henry. You know, you can't interview Kevin Henry anymore. He passed away the last couple of years. You know, but Sean Gavin, you know, knows like what I was trying to do is if I didn't have the person, I was going to create like 
a nexus of their students talking about this is a really weird yeah analogy but like the flower petals around the center just basically to get something so like uh i don't know if you've ever heard of joe shannon but he was a guy in chicago and he was um related to milani who was a piper back in the day who kind of was on the coattails of o'neill and like uh he knew all those guys you know like he knew tom ennis he hung out with tom ennis like that generation is like gone so like what you have to do is kind of rebuild it so i talked to liz carroll about it she knew joe when she was young hang in chicago everybody knew joe you know because she's an institution but um yeah so like that's what i would try to do um there was another guy who actually did his he, I think he did a, either a master's thesis or PhD. I'm not too sure on inland piping in America, and he's up in Portland in Maine. His name is Tom Wilsbach, and uh, he's a lovely guy. He's also um, moving on in years, as we all are. Um, he's got a head start on me, though, and uh, I've been trying to sit down with him because he knew Joe. He went and visited, and the recordings that I have of Joe are of Tom interviewing him. Um, And what the American style was and what, you know, she's trying to figure this all out. He's a lovely guy, and um, it's hard. It's hard to get a hold of him, and it's hard to set something up. And it's also hard to get some of these people to agree to record their interview, you know. Um, What's the just not wanting to be... Like, what's the reticence, I guess? I'm curious. Just, you know, old people. <laughs> okay, yeah. You know, not wanting to be down on record saying anything or not wanting anybody to steal their research. I'm not talking about Tom now. I'm just talking, this is super general. There's also a couple guys in Chicago um, that are super into this stuff too, but one of them's writing a book about oh, the So he won't talk to anybody about anything. Because he wants to publish his book first, so that all the little tidbits that he's picked up will not be published or whatever before he he does, you know. Yeah. Um, but that was the whole idea behind it, and um, it's on. There's there's like three big things in the works for me at the moment, and this thing is definitely there, and time is not on your side. So you have yeah. to, you know, I'm almost like two steps away from just buying a Zoom and just driving around, you know, and that's it, you know. But um, yeah, yeah. So that that's basically it. Um, I've always been interested in, you know, the piping, piping, well, any of the piping that's recorded anyway from the early 20th century, but like. Um, yeah, there's, if, if, if you follow piping, like after that, there's a huge lull. Um, that's sort of what I was surprised by you talking about the people like Joe Shannon and like in my head, my understanding of, from talking to Tim Britton and listening to Pat Sky talk, I've always gotten the sense that, yeah, we understand that America was sort of a hotbed of illin piping in, you know, 1900 and then 
within 60 years, it seems like there's nobody doing it anymore to where like Pat's guy's going to Ireland to Britain's going to Ireland in order to get these things. And then kind of the sense I got from Tim was that he had to learn making pipes because there was no other way to get them. Like you hear that from quite a few people, right? Right. And if you, it's something that I say all the time, like you have, you have these 20 year old kids or these 16 year old kids who have this beautiful set of pipes made for them that work, you know, and the, the real people that basically created the existence of that possibility are the people that basically, if you wanted to play Illum pipes, you had to make read yourself, make your own set. That's why a lot of people, you know, there's a guy named Bill Thomas, who's a furniture maker, beautiful, beautiful, like, like um, recreations of French period stuff, like stuff, oh, cool. trick drawers and, you know, all this stuff. Um, he, he's, he makes pipes. He, the pipes that he played, he made. And um, Tim, of course, started making them. Uh, David Quinn, same thing. Benedict Kohler, same thing. Um, that was the thing. It wasn't really to make money. It was more like to just make yourself an instrument because there's nothing there, you know? It's funny, we complain about, like, a five-year or a ten-year waiting list. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, yeah, that's that's basically it. It's, everybody's spoiled now, even in Ireland, like. Yeah, when I saw that Nipibri Illin, like, lends out sets to people that are starting, like, oh my goodness, that's that's incredible. Um, I don't know if you saw on, on Facebook a while back, there's a Illin Piper from Scotland, uh, David John Monroe, who was pretty active, I think, in this, maybe in the 70s or 80s, but... I was just looking through his old photos and he had the set of Illin pipes he made for kind of the same reason. And his main stock was a coffee can that he had like kind of squeezed down, but he painted it black. So it looked like you could tell looking at it, like that's a little janky, but it still looks sort of right. He's like, yeah, it's a coffee can. A bunch of us were doing that because <laughs> we couldn't get sets. Like, all right, that'll, that'll work. <laughs> yeah. So like, I have major props and major respect for all those people, you know, understanding. That's one of the reasons why there weren't too many guys. But if you if you line up the times right between. Let's say the time that Tui died. That's 19. 23. Line that line that time up, and then the extinction of all the pipers and musicians in in America with the war, and you'll see a huge connection. Man, because everybody had to go. All men had to go. Yeah. Yeah, these these like bottleneck moments are just horrifying. Like the like if it's not the famine or you know the wars, and then it just makes living through a pandemic all that more. Uh, I don't know. Like it, it feels more horrifying. Like you say, just buy a Zoom, drive around, talk to people. Um, everything feels so much more imperative. Like what are we going to have lost at the end of this? Okay. Um, I know for. Um, you know, so my 
my actual education is in Ojibwe language and like Ojibwe history, like indigenous history. And it's been brutal. I mean, it's the same thing of like going around trying to interview people um, to like collect traditions. But as like a language person, there's also a real concern that as more first language speakers pass away, like, like grammatically, we have a decent understanding of the language, but there's all these things that you just don't, you don't get unless you're listening to two fluent people talk to one another and that kind of thing. And it's been brutal, the pandemic, like, I think something like 15% of language speakers in America have died during the pandemic, or maybe, um, I can't, I can't remember the numbers, but it's, it's bad. It's, it's horrifying. But at the same time, like the pandemic has made, like, I'm helping to like lead a Ojibwe language table twice a week. And some of the people that are coming to that class are also going, they're going to a Zoom session in various reservations and communities, like every day of the week, basically. So like all these resources are there. And I, I mean, it's not the same as like getting stories of old Illin Pipers in America, but I absolutely was not part of any kind of Illin Piping community until the pandemic. Like I've never gone to a, a channel or nothing. And like, I was kind of horrified of meeting other Illin Pipers uh, and then going to those Piper Sundays that Southern California Illin Pipers Club are doing. I was just like, oh, I didn't realize that like Illin Pipers are cool and they're not gonna they're not gonna try to murder me. This is great. Uh, <laughs> <all depends. laughs> maybe I've just been maybe they're just all scheming in the private chat. I don't I don't know. No, anybody that appreciates it, you have space, you know. There's not too many. So it's you know what I mean? It's like you do kind of forget how niche this thing is. Like to me, there's like such a weird, Ellen pipes are so challenging that there's a weird like ego, ego about it or appreciation about it. That just makes me sort of shocked that like when you said, like <laughs> I was angry when you were, you know, working for the post office and couldn't play for three months. It's just like, that's not, that shouldn't be how this is. <laughs> like it's, it's like uh, like Gordon Duncan having to be a garbage man too. Like he can't just be a piper. Like he can't pursue art. Have to do X, Y, and Z. Um, Unfortunately, yeah. it's how our society is set up at the moment. Yeah. You know, yeah. but um, you'd have a lot. You know, you'd have a lot more artists if it was set up the other way. Yeah. Everybody's too scared of people freeloading. Yeah. That's the whole thing. And art is not, unless you it's want to read a movie or read a book or <laughs> it's a whole unless thing. unless you want anything that you actually want. Literally, yes. Go to a museum. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Anyway. So what's your um? Maybe speaking of like an American piping tradition, like I'm just kind of curious. What is your? How did you get interested in piping? I think we were talking about um that concert in Dublin. And I think that's the review where I saw somebody said that you were from the Southern California Illin piping tradition by way of Japan. And I was like, well, there's a story I don't understand. Me neither. <laughs> I don't know. Okay. <laughs> yeah. That's um, what I wanted. It was an Irish it was an Irish woman presenting. I never met her before. I think her last name was Cranage. But she wasn't related to Matt Cranage. I found out. Yeah, she introduced us. Um Yeah, she apparently, she, she just didn't really know who we were or what we were about or why we were there. Okay. 
other than we got hired by people to be there and we were there. Um, so when I was younger, I got an opportunity to um, play music in Japan at a theme park for a year. Uh, so I was playing Animal Pipes every day and then um, and Tin Whistle. And I got the Tokyo Illum Pipers Club started when I was there. And we met, we met every month. And I absolutely fell in love with the culture, the food, everything. And I was 20 when I went over. And uh, it affected me in a great way. The, the culture affected me in a great way, in a positive way. And uh, there's lots of great musicians there. And I had a great, I had a great time. So I lived there for a year. I don't know what that means, but she guess, I guess she said that I, I, I told Jackie, I, I was like, oh, we live in Japan. Like we live in Japan half, half the year, you know, like our house in Japan, you know, <laughs> in California, we live in Santa Monica half the year and Japan half the year. I'm independently wealthy. Why, why else would I be playing for you? We, we like, we just like started working off this idea um yeah so that was that um i grew up in los angeles i was born in santa monica uh st john's hospital catholic hospital and uh i'm one of nine kids um my parents are not from ireland uh my mom and dad were both born in los angeles on my dad's side, I'm a sixth generation Angelino. What? And on my mom's side, um, her, my grandmother's, my maternal grandmother's mother, my great grandmother was from Wicklow town in County Wicklow. And she immigrated um, with her family um, just before the, the war for independence. So, um, but a Barda is actually uh, Basque. It's not Italian and it's not Spanish. I know people say Basque is Spanish, but. Um, not Basque people though. No, not Basque people. <laughs> um, I recently found out though that a Barda, A-B-A-R-T-A is also an Irish word, which is super interesting. I found it in an old book on Google Books. Um, that uh, it was one of the um, the gods that hung out with Finn McCool, one of his one of his crew. Um, his nickname was the Doer of Deeds, and uh, there was this old. Besides that uh, idea, there was an old blessing that you would give to a laborer or a sorry a tradesman that has completed completed a job to your satisfaction. If you didn't give the blessing, he would have to do it over. He wouldn't get paid. Kind of thing. It's like an old, like Gaelic law thing. But A B A R T A. That's it. A barda. Um, but a lot of people don't think it's Irish or refuse that it's Irish. So I'm constantly explaining my surname, and that's why I have kind of a spiel. But um, I'm every. I'm a super mutt. Like I'm. English, Scottish, 
uh, Irish, Sicilian on my dad's side, uh, as well as Basque, as well as Mexican, as well as Native American, because we've been in California. L.A. for that long, yeah. Well, for the state, you know. Um, yeah, so I grew up uh, kind of listening to Irish music from my grandma. She's really into her culture. She's half Irish, half German. And uh, her mother was from Ireland, my great-grandmother. And I used to hang out with her a lot when I was a kid. And, um, yeah, I just heard bits and pieces. Like, I always tell people that there were, like, um, three big um, resurgences of, of traditional music in America. The first was a Gaelic revival. Um, that was around the Victorian times. And then there was the folk revival, you know. And then there was the River Dance revival, yeah. basically. And I'm a subject of that. Um, so, yeah, I I heard the, the music and I really enjoyed it. And um, eventually I got my hands on a boron when I was in my my teens and st- found some sessions because of the successfulness of River Dance there was a lot of music in Los Angeles at the time and a lot of people that were playing you know and getting into it um, there was a small collection of Irish people that lived there including my teacher Patrick Darcy that I eventually met but before that I just played the boron and a bit of the tin whistle because it was cheap and easy to get I didn't know how to get right. a pipe I don't even know what a wheel pipe was I didn't even know how to play it where I would even start and then one day I was at a session and, and Darcy came in and I was just like blown away um, yeah. and eventually I said I want to learn how to do this can you teach me and he goes sure so the Southern California Pipers Club I started going down there I was the youngest guy down there I was like 15 or 16 right all these like 40 40 50 year olds <laughs> sitting around you know drinking beers and shooting shooting the hay and uh someone donated a chanter someone donated a bag someone someone donated a bellow someone turned the joints they put it all together and then that that was it that was my first practice set um and uh that that's how that's how that, that's how it goes all she wrote as she says they say um did pat did pat start learning in the states or was he already a piper when he moved over yeah he learned later he played a bit of the mandolin and he was in a band he was one of the forming members of the band flogging molly oh no kidding yeah yeah he used to hang out with those guys <laughs> don't quote me on that <laughs> they might sue me um but he came over and he was you know more into rock music his dad god rest him he played the uh melodion and the harmonica but he you know i don't i don't think he they were like going out to sessions and that kind of stuff i think once in a while they would play a bit of music and his mom sang it was a great his mom is a great singer i met them twice when they came over from ireland to visit patrick and 
Yeah, he met his wife, who's American, and she worked for Animal Actors, which is this company that trains dogs and lions bears how to how to do stuff in, in movies. And um, that's when I started taking lessons from him. He was already really proficient on the pipes. He really got into it, and um, it was a great opportunity to learn with him. And you know, uh, you know. He really helped me out. My, my family didn't have any money, so I could never get a set. I could never take lessons. For what I charge now, I couldn't at all. Right. And uh, he helped me out a lot. He gave me a lot of recordings, including uh, the cylinder recordings. Um, mm. I didn't even know what they were. I just listened to them and learned stuff off of them. And, um, I just knew they were noisy, but I liked listening to them. Um, but he got me started with a great musical foundation of how I think about and appreciate music, piping in particular today. Yeah, that's cool. I was uh, like, I, yeah, I, I got my first practice at, in the 90s, like early 90s too. And it's sort of funny, like how I kind of spitted and started. Like I, I didn't like have a continual line, didn't have a teacher and sort of abandoned Ill and piping. Yeah. Yeah. And stupid. Like I didn't real. I, I didn't have no to one, do it that way. No one does. Like, no one does. Everybody thinks. I've seen it all. I've seen it all, Jim. Yeah, but uh, but it was interesting. Every time I would get more interested in Ilan piping, just like what a constant Ilan obsession has been, like on the the piping internet for me. And it was it was really cool when those uh, like when Wallet the Spot came out, realizing oh that's the Ilan obsession guy, and then doing these Piper Sundays uh, attending. It's been. Yeah, Pat's a cool dude. I'm glad to. I don't feel like you know how like when you see somebody talk all the time, you feel like you know them, even though it's only ever been a one way conversation. <laughs> but it's been it's been cool feeling like I getting to know him. Yeah, and he still teaches too. He still teaches, and he plays in Los Angeles. And I think his biggest thing that he was doing is plays with a uh, a uh, Christian uh, band. Um, called the Gettys, and I think they're based in Nashville. I'm not sure, but yeah, I know he was, he did a gig recently in Nashville. I think so. Yeah, yeah, that's probably it. Yeah. yeah, a lot of people are moving to Nashville. Damn. Yeah, it's uh, it's a nightmare to <laughs> to be there. Like, it's always the worst interstate system to drive through. Is okay. Nashville? Like, I don't, I don't, I don't really know. Yeah, it's a, it's definitely one of those cities that's worth taking a two-hour detour to not drive through, uh, unless you want to go get amazing music and hot chicken, then you kind of have to. Right. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, so so definitely, that's that's basically how I started and, and, and how I first, whether I was ignorant to the fact or not, um, experienced music from Bernard Delaney and Patsy Tui. Um, you know. Does it, how do you feel about, like, the, the style of how music is, you know, on those recordings, like, around 1900 to now, is wildly different, right? Like, there's... I, I can never tell if it's, like, wildly different or just I'm always listening to wax cylinders at the wrong speed. <laughs> like, if that's always, like, part of the issue. But it's, it's remarkable to me looking at you know, paying attention. I've read through all these manuscripts from the 18th and 19th century about how to play pastoral pipes or union pipes, and then you jump forward to like the first recordings, and it's like nothing like that. And then you jump forward to today, 
just, I don't know. Do you have any philosophy on how the music has changed for better or worse or anything of that sort? Or? Yeah. Um, this came up in the interview that I just did. It was like, well, first, because I'm American, right? You have a lot of labels on everything. But if you get super technical about it, I'm an American playing an American-made instrument based on Irish instrument, but playing music recorded in America by naturalized Americans living yeah. in the beginning of the, you know, 20th century. So, you know, is the music Irish or is it American? This is, it's a question that I ask myself constantly. Of course it's not American. <laughs> it wouldn't be good if it was American. <laughs> um, but the whole American Illin piping style, right? So when I talk to people about this, and I've talked about it at great length to a great many people, <laughs> because it's something that I'm interested in, I've had a lot of different answers. And one is something that somebody brought up to me that this style is not invented in America. This style was not invented in America. This style was brought from Ireland and it's the comic style of piping, the clothes style. And for some reason, that was fashionable and caught on. Now, you know, I can't give you a thousand things that I've cited as material based on what I just said, <laughs> sure. like a research paper. But that's something that, that I've heard, that America, in a time where Ireland was kind of not doing so well with all the horrible stuff that was going on, I, America, in this case Chicago, kind of acted as a time capsule and saved it, saved that particular style. Unfortunately, well, they didn't really know that what they were doing. They were just looking for a better life, and music was a secondary thing. We're, benef we're benefiting from one man's purchase of a wax cylinder recorder and love of traditional music. Um, yeah, I, like, I haven't read everything about the pastoral pipes or, or early union pipes, but... If you if you listen to the early piping recordings that were made in Ireland as well, you kind of the, the styles are very similar. If you look at Denny Delaney's piping, the styles are very similar. Denny wasn't playing a Taylor set, so you don't have a clear depiction of exactly what's going on. But when they recorded all those pipers at that fesh, I think in Belfast or I can't or in Dublin, I can't remember when that was. Eighteen something. On wax cylinder. The piping styles were the same. And the regulators were being hit. Same way. For gigs. And you know, it's 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 all really there. Like yeah. so that's what it looks like on those um, 
I mean, the, the big thing in like O'Farrell's Tudor and some of the other ones is that yeah, regulator notes are hit on the beat and not sustained. You know, they're they're percussion accompaniment. They're not right, right, courses. right. And the other thing was is uh, Barry O'Neill found uh, a regulator written out regulator part. Yeah. And I did a talk on regulators for the Chinola last year, I think. And I played this and did the regulators with it, you know. And it it was rhythmic, you know. There was, you know, you would hold a mate for a couple sometimes, but mostly it was, it was rhythmic. That was the Miller, the Miller manuscript one, or? Yes. Which is again so, the, and then Miller's a Scottish piper in Aberdeen, right? That like right. So yeah. it even gets more confusing because yeah. the actual origin of the Union pipes, or pastoral pipes, or the Inland pipes, that is all down to some circumstantial evidence that people just keep bringing up this and bringing up that. No one really knows for sure. I, I've never been proven by anybody other than circumstantial evidence basically about you know where they came from what but you don't know that the war pipes in the north of england got messed with and then all of a sudden it was like the rage and then everybody started trying to make money off of them so then everybody started making them and it was just a thing and the whole regulator thing it's like whoa brand the new bagpipe this whole new thing right wow, you could play flute music on this or whatever. Yeah. Everybody started going nuts. So, again, more confusing terminology. It's something It's something that I kind of love about it, like that, like Irish music is like the most, some of the most important and like impactful parts of Irish music, like instruments wise that we think of as quintessentially Irish musical instruments are from other places like the bazooki the boron the inland pipes like inland pipes by the by the 17 by the late 18th century even though there's this questionable like well pastoral pipe union pipe just as often you see them referred to as irish pipes like even miller calls them irish pipes in his manuscript and but miller's one of these tinkerers who's got highland bagpipes that he plays a lowland kind of border pipe set that he seems to play and he also invented a new channer like with a bunch of keys on it for highland pipes like he's a tinkerer like so many people were i think right totally totally and but now if you ask somebody the harp and the inland pipes are the those are the symbols of ireland those are that that's it and that's how it's going to be that's just it yeah. and you could and i think that's fine i mean i i just think well, how, the... are, how they are today and what they represent and what people have made them into from this idea yes that is true yeah but if you're going to get like super technical and um you know bookwormy about it there's there's a lot of different, you know, ideas, and everybody seems to have a different one, and everybody seems to have different sto- a different story or circumstantial evidence based on this or that, you know. And I've heard a lot of them, and you know, you just can't really can't really say for sure. But um, yeah. So with American Illum piping, 
there is a thought that the style was not developed in America. The style is a... It's its own enclave that was built up through like-minded individuals um, to continue an Irish style of inland piping that died out in Ireland and continued, well, mostly, and then continued. The links are there. Um, If you listen to a lot of the, you know, you know, I I think that the the Dorans um, had this conic style. I think a lot of these guys who who played who learned from the older guys or had music in their family they had this type of music that was different um it's not that anymore um and it's evolved and developed and the tradition has evolved and developed as it's supposed to do um no matter if you think it's tasteful or not tasteful, I challenge anybody to say that the amount of technique and skill used on an instrument in 1910. Yeah. And the amount of tunes and the efficiency and rhythm and intonation that these guys had. Try finding that in, in the 50s. Yeah. It was a different time. There was different people making. A lot of people died. There was nothing. You know, so I understand that. But even by today's standards, you know. um, So I appreciate it. And my whole thing is, if you can't do it, don't poo-poo it. (laughs) You can't backstitch. You can't say that that's a waste of time. Man. I, I still don't know that I know how to backstitch, but <laughs> I had this, like, I don't know. Ryan Benke was, like, I kept on, every time I sent him a tune, he's like, yeah, now do the backstitching. I'm like, I don't know how to do that. And I've had him, like, show me the notes over and over again. And, like, just, I, I already mentioned this on the podcast, I guess, but, like, to bring it back full circle, I always feel like the only reason I'm at all the pipe I am today is because of those Pat Sky books that he published and looking at them. And it was really cool. I was looking through Wakes of Westmeath from, um, I think it was Coakley's setting for it. And just out of nowhere, I, I started backstitching. I was like, oh my, oh, I, ah, I figured it out. And only because of, I don't know, boredom, tediousness of playing the tune so many times in order to record it. But it just, it felt good. Like that, my one final gift from Pat Sky, which is not true. Like, but it felt like at the time, like, oh, Pat Sky, again, uh, just by having this music available, taught me how to pipe. But, um, but yeah, then then I went on a road trip and listened to his singing from New York and it just was like blew my mind. Like his yeah. folk albums are awesome. Oh, totally. Totally. You know, you don't, you don't get any, you don't get a lot of Ellen Pipers that have their obituary in uh, uh Rolling Stone. Yeah. Like, you know. yeah. And deserve it. Deserve it. It was oh, so totally. good. music is yeah. so good. And uh, I have kept you, I've kept you for longer than an hour. Um, oh, all right. I feel like I should, yeah. I feel like I should set you free. Um, Let's wrap it up. But, um, but I, I guess I do kind of, I am curious. Keep going. Uh, if you Just w- lash out the questions and I'll try to be as concise and to the point as possible. <laughs> with no digressions whatsoever. <laughs> oh, no, I'm, and I'm, I'm fine. Just, uh, I know you've already had a, a significantly long 
um, Zoom today. Um, well, okay. So speaking of Ryan Benke, I think I I think he bought your Hubbard set, the three quarter set, at some point. He bought, um, he bought my he. That was my first uh, set of pipes. That was not a practice set, and uh, my first D set actually. Let me correct myself. Yeah. And it was a beautiful set of pipes. I loved it. Yeah. I got it right before I went to Japan, and I had it all through Japan with me. And I'm terribly sentimental, and I did not want to sell the set. But for in some crazy reason, in some crazy world, uh, my teacher asked David Quinn and Benedict to make me a set. And I didn't know. And they informed me. Your set is going to be ready at this date. So I said, I don't have the money for it at all. And my whole thing back then was if, and Pat, and Pat, taught, Pat taught me this too. He goes, if it's meant to be, the money will be there. If it's meant to be. So I forget how I actually met Ryan, but I met him in person later and him and I had a, a brief uh, relationship where we shared a lot of music together before he went to the University of Limerick. And um, he, I tried to teach him as, as much stuff as I want, as he could, you know, learn before he went. Um, and he's done great. He's just blast off. He's a very, very fine piper and a good person. And I'm happy to know him, and I hope I can play tunes with him soon. Um, and please tell him that I send my warmest regards the next time you play with him. But um, he bought that set, and um, I got that set because I was on Michael's waiting list, and then somebody said they didn't want them before he was done making the bass regulator. Oh. And I ordered the three-quarter set from him, and uh, he said, do you want them? I know you're going to Japan. I'd rather send you off with these now and then give your set whenever I make them to the next person in line. I said, sure, that'd be great, um, of course. <laughs> yeah. And I had a great time with them. They're a beautiful set of pipes. Michael is, like, such an artist, and he's a really cool guy. If you have some time to chat with him about literally anything, he's lived a couple lifetimes and uh, he's a very wise and uh, Zen kind of guy. And he's a beautiful, beautiful artist. His pipes are yeah, I've, unbelievable. I was blown away by them. Like I, I had uh, like, I, I, got a full set too soon basically and so didn't really develop the right skills i think I just neglected my regulators yeah. but when i played ryan when i played that hubbard set it was just like oh this is how this can work <laughs> like i didn't it just like the keys were all so comfortable to hit um it was just yeah actually it was just, because i'm not that i'm i'm not that tall you know i'm not i'm, not, I'm a very small person uh, and he actually made the stock shorter so that would be more comfortable for me. Uh, that was my only thing. I said, if you could, could you just make this stock a little bit shorter? Because I'm afraid I won't reach regulators. That being said, I played a set that flat set stock and my B set. Yeah, 
and they're all just huge and i don't have a problem because i just you just do it and when you get to a point you just do it (laughs) grit your teeth and do it (laughs) yeah yeah i feel yeah every time i well that, that was another question i had for you i guess is uh have you had any like really breakthrough moments in your like learning um again because i did the dumb self-taught reason i had a lot of very long plateaus before getting better ever but so because of that i have these moments of like oh that was the thing that helped me like i threw my head up in disgust at trying to hit the regulators and all of a sudden if i wasn't looking i found it was a lot easier to actually like hit the keys in the right spot um and it didn't seem impossible if my eyes weren't telling me you can't do that that's impossible so that was one of my questions like do you have any really important moments that helped you make the excellent music or any beginning takeoff moments for you that you remember from when you're learning i think the biggest the biggest moments that helped my music was meeting and chatting with pipers that i had a high value on with their music and just hearing them talk about music and hearing them talk about how they approach how they approach tunes or what their philosophy is. So even if they don't necessarily approach a tune, a lot of people just do it and it's good, you know? Um, Their philosophy behind it can kind of clue you in on what it is. And I've been so fortunate to meet so many wonderful, very open-hearted musicians and especially pipers that have been uh, very generous with their music and tuition um, to me. And uh, I try to just take as much as I can and do good by them and try my best as, you know, musically as much as I can. And uh, sometimes I do okay and sometimes I don't, but you just got to keep, you just got to keep powering through. Like... I'll tell everybody this when I do regulated classes, which is very, very uncommon. No one ever taught me regulators. It was just a thing that I had them and I just tried to bash it away. But what I, what I remember is that I had regulators too soon and it really affected my finger, my finger work. And it still has. My finger work is not as clean as it could be um, because of that time where I was like, oh, I want to play everything, I want to play everything, I want to play everything. Um, and eventually I got there. I'm, I'm able to, you know, get through a tune without stopping and playing a bit of regulators and maybe a couple of triplets or this or that. But, like, you know, I always tell people who want to learn regulators, I said, the best, the first step to learning regulators is to take them off your set. Yeah, yeah. Take them off your set and get it so that your your fingers know what they're doing so well that you don't have to think about your fingers. And as soon as you don't have to think think about your fingers, then you could think about where your wrist is, how you're holding it, what chord you're gonna hit when, and what rhythm, etc. But it's um, it's been many the fall of many, many's the piper, um, trying to bite off and it is a lot to bite off, you know, like 
it's something where Ellen pipes for me it's like you literally have to play every day to keep up to a certain level if you if you even go a week I, I feel it I yeah. feel it it's just stuff I took two weeks off recently and it was a nightmare <laughs> like really interesting nightmare. to to learn to learn that way too you know um also, when you get to a certain point, if you take a couple of days off, you approach the instrument a little bit differently based on how you've been thinking about music in that time, I find. Or you've been thinking about a particular tune, but you've been working it out in your head. Yeah. So then when you can sit down, you just, you're just able to play it or whatever. You know? It's that type of thing. Like, regulators are... You either love them or you hate them. That's really. I got. Yeah, when I saw Nick Brown's set, you know, and and you know Ronan Brown's too, like these 18th century Kanawha sets and whatever that only have one regulator, and then I listened to the music that Nick was making with one regulator. I, if I had the corks right then, I I don't think I'd have. I think I'd only have one regulator on my set right now. It's just like, oh, just one, seems like it's not gonna drive me bonkers as much That's, and it clearly can do so much musically still with just that one regulator going yeah on. like my whole thing is when people want to learn i start off people by just going take out your bass and your baritone and just play with your tenor and just get used to putting your hand down and doing something different and knowing the notes and how they correspond to the chord changes in the tune you know, and then after that you add because it's an air game too. Yeah. The more air you're using, the more you're pumping, the more pressure you have to have on your bag. It's all just like you're leveling up, leveling up, leveling up. And as soon as you get, you know, same thing. It's like people are like, "Oh, I want really want to get drones." It's like, yeah, but if you can't f have your bag full to play one phrase, you will not be able to drone right. And then when you get when people get the drones, I say plug up the bass and plug up the baritone, and you just play with the tenor. Or I use an app for drones. Oh yeah, Michael Eskin's uh, three quarter set app. Um, it's awesome. I'm gonna do a plug for that. He hasn't paid me any money or given me anything for free, but I'm gonna plug it for him. It's the um, accordion. Uh, you're probably familiar. Uh, I mean, I, I think I've seen it, but I. Don't. Yeah, it's called the three, the three quarter set app through Michael Eskin's app page. He does like accordions, Mexican accordions, melodians, BC accordions, C sharp D accordions, but he also does um, a three quarters and and a full set that are touch regulators. Yeah, and uh, they have drones and they can be pitched in. Uh, I think it's like twenty cents flat or sharp of four forty four. D, C, C sharp, B, and B flat. So I, I try to just tell my students who have practice sets, it'll help your intonation and it's none of the hard work. Yeah. So just play with the drone. It'll help you, you know, it will help you if you play along with it. Because your ear starts to know what's in tune and what's not. And your back pressure will vary on when and when you stop the drone you'll be used to what pressure you're pressing the notes at so yeah but like i said it's it's all on the air game so you just have to be able to manage it properly and supply it properly to be able to get it going 
Yeah, it's I, I keep seeing various uh, people posting a while back anyway in that Ilan Piper's Facebook group or something, but it was just a video of like ten minutes of drone. <laughs> it's just like here you go, play along. <laughs> you know, but that's only number one if that drone's on four forty and that's where you want to be. Yeah. And number two, if those drones are in tune the whole time. Because the hardest thing for me right. in any recording situation for like singers or a band situation or whatever is literally only playing drones is so much harder than just than yeah. just playing the channel and the drones for some reason i don't know if it's your whatever trying to keep it in tune or whatever but it's just it's just so hard it's, to do that yeah i every once in a while i'll think i'm going to it's easier because i wind up recording way too much for the podcast uh and so it'd be easier if i didn't play with drones so i could you know, just add the drones in later. So I'll just do that. And yeah, it's, it's nearly impossible to like, just do a steady drone for a minute and a half. (laughs) Uh, even that long, like, yeah, it doesn't work. It kind of makes you appreciate, um, I can't remember what his name was, what his first name was. Was it Alton O'Farrell? Um, there's a dude that was like recorded, like they paid him money to come in and record a wax cylinder, um, or some kind of recording equipment, but when it was really expensive and hard to do, and they thought he was going to play a bunch of jigs, and he just droned for fifteen oh, minutes. Oh yes, like, yes, 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 yeah. yes, yes, yes. Yeah, cool guy. Yeah. Uh, okay, so I guess to to sign off, and I've you've already said a bunch of kind of deep and important stuff, so I feel bad asking another question. Oh, but, fire away. Um, do you have any like after? I mean, you said you took three months off of kind of having to work during a pandemic and not piping so much but do you well, have no, any new insights I took, about- I took nine months off oh yeah man. I took nine months off I was I was a mailman for nine months man yeah so yeah. well coming back to it now do you have any uh I feel like you might have already answered this um do you have any new insights about music piping life after 18 months of a pandemic and now two kids um I I was telling the I, I just got in touch with the treasurer for the Boston Pipers Club. Her name is Roseanne Santucci, and she lives in Boston. She's on Facebook. You probably saw her sometimes on the Facebook groups. But um, she's a treasurer. But she had to take over when I when I started when I kind of checked out. Um, and uh, I told her it was like a near death experience musically. Um, so now I'm doing everything. So. Hence, I'm here talking to you. Hence, I did an ethnomusicology interview earlier today, and I'm going to go do a rehearsal tonight. Um, and I'm just playing all the time and trying to get my new record um, done. Uh, it's, I'm still working on that. Uh, Copley Street 2 is going to be out, um, hopefully by October. Um, and... Yeah, and I'm trying to... It's it's really in the works when I'm trying to plan a piping weekend in Boston here, um, called the Patsy Tuley Memorial Weekend, um, and that will be centered around uh, early American styles, but also just a fun weekend. It's going to be super low key, and um, this coming uh, year, hopefully, and uh, I haven't told anybody or advertised it at all except you. All right. Hey. He's here, the first to hear about it. And um, yeah, we're going to have a lot of great people come and uh, some awesome guests. And it's going to be workshop based, um, like talks 
on history more than actual um, piping classes, but there'll be those two, um, something for everybody basically. Um, and uh, lots of sessions and recitals and concerts and stuff. So stay tuned and get a hold of me if you want to buy a, a weekend pass or something like that. That sounds awesome, Joey. Yeah. yeah. I'm excited uh, to send you a question. I'm, I'm excited for my kids to hear more music, except just me. <laughs> my daughter said the other day, she says, she pointed to the back room where I keep the pipes and she was eating her dinner. And I, I always play for her. And uh, she's just starting to talk, so she doesn't have that many words. And she points to the back and I said, what, what do you want? She goes, pipes. <laughs> I was like, what? And she goes, dad, dad, pipes. And I was like, oh, you want me to play? She's like, hmm. <laughs> okay, awesome. this is why I had kids. So, it's been a good start. And uh, they've heard a lot of good music already. And um, we'll see. We'll see if they. I really, I liked your your take on that. Where you were, uh, I think it was in the Piper Sunday. But you were you were like, I don't want to force it on them. Like I'm not. So we're just being real gentle, like flat sets, and you know, I'm gonna ease into this, so it's not. Yeah, a... yeah. Like I, it doesn't matter. It, it doesn't matter. Any music is good music to me, just because it's not the music that moves me doesn't mean it's not important or good but we'll see like the the big quote that i say about people because everybody's gonna assume because my wife is a musician and dancer and i'm a dancer i'm a, <laughs> I'm a musician <laughs> or i try to be a musician well i'm a piper i'm not a musician um oh that's beautiful <laughs> <laughs> gotta get a little a couple of those in um that they're going to play. And I said, well, they, they, they might, or they mightn't, but they'll know what Irish music is. They'll know what it is. That's it. That's all. They, and then if they want to do it, they do it. And if they don't want to, they don't have to, but they'll know exactly what it is. There won't be any of this in between stuff. You know, it's not going to be, you know, Celtic tenors or anything like that. They'll know what traditional Irish music is, what the pipes are, what the books of Warren Moore are. They, they'll know all that. Yeah. Oh, cool. Well, well, thanks for doing this. Thank Joey. you. Thank you. It was a great opportunity to talk to you and just have a nice conversation over my lunch. I hope the chewing will be loud. And um, yeah, I wish you the best of luck and uh, that we can get you up here sometime to do some stuff. That'd be great. was a lovely chat uh thanks again joey and thanks for this tune uh we're listening like i said at the beginning this is a track off of joey's latest release uh, copley street this is a tune called fair gentle uh eile o'carroll so you can pick up the album on Bandcamp and highly recommend it it's a bunch of joey and nathan gorley playing uh, often with owen marshall joining in but just some really stellar stellar tunes so 
go check that out. Uh, I'm also going to have a link to several of the magazines and things that we were talking about. So there's the Ellen Piper, uh, and then the other uh, newspaper from the Seattle Pipers Club that's from the 70s. It's a pretty interesting read and short to read these new le- newsletters from the 70s of people trying to organize some sort of uh, Ellen Piping community from across the entire United States and Canada. Um, for additional content and to support the show, head over to patreon.com slash Likely won't have an episode on this feed next week, but I am planning on releasing a bonus episode over there sometime in the near future. So thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.